Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up, y'all? There it is. I am Justin Burke. I am joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our outstanding producer, Dr. Nicholas Lee. Nick, say hi. What's up? Welcome back, man. This is, what episode is this for you? Number three, number four? I don't remember anymore. I know. You're you're one of our regulars. It's ah, the the, the Siders Fugue. We are very excited to have you, Nick, and we are also very excited to have our guest tonight, Dr. Tanya Watt. She was outstanding discussing all about childhood leukemia. Uh, But before we talk about that, Chris. Yeah. What do we do on this show? Well, well, JB, I'll tell you. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Tanya Watt. She is an associate professor in pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern, and she practices at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. She went to medical school at UT Health Science Center at San Antonio and completed her residency and pediatric hematology oncology fellowship at Emory. After that, she joined the UT Southwestern as faculty, where she was recognized as the Deadman Family Scholar in Clinical Care and is the program director of the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program. She loves getting to teach the newest medical students and residents and hopes to inspire all to develop a fascination and love for the science behind pediatric oncology. And she's one of my favorite attendings ever. Amazing. It was so great to have so many Texas people on the phone call. In fact, everyone but Chris, <laughs> I think, has a, a Texas connection. That is correct. I have none. Sorry. Sorry, Chris. Ohio is the Texas of the Midwest. Um, totally. Today... <laughs> Uh, today, Dr. Watt taught us about the different types of childhood leukemias, what to look for to make sure you're not missing the diagnosis, and how to discuss what life with cancer is like for these patients um, when you're talking with a parent for, for a new diagnosis. So a lot of great pearls. I learned a ton. This was an excellent show. I loved it. Can't wait for everyone to hear what it's all about. I don't know. If hey, I see what out. you did there. <laughs> Dangerous cancer pun. Dangerous cancer pun. Off to a rocky start. Too soon. soon. Dr. Tanya Watt, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. What What a pleasure. We're looking forward to talking about leukemia with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So very excited to talk about this. Uh, you know, we're a pretty informal show. Is it okay? We usually refer to our guests by their first name. Yes, Is it please. okay if we call you Tanya for the episode? Okay. That's fantastic. Um, you can call me Justin and the, the Chew Man is, is how Chris <laughs> is the refers official to name? Me. Okay. The official name is the Chew Man. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I should change so thing. Thanks for coming to the show. And we, we like to start with just some rapid fire questions. So the audience needs to know you a little bit better. And so can I start by asking you just to, to give kind of a one-liner description of yourself and, and to, to let people know what you're interested in, maybe outside of medicine as well? 
So I'm a pediatric oncologist. I'm also a mom of two children, an almost 12-year-old girl and a nine-year-old boy. I love to run. That's my big stress reliever. And as Nick well knows, um, I'm known throughout the hospital for always wearing heels um, anywhere. So you can always hear me coming. <laughs> nice. I, I often wear cowboy boots because of the Texas connection right. that you mentioned. And there are some staircases where I am very hyper aware that those things can echo. <laughs> very <and> loud. It's <laughs> like 10 floors that know you're you're in a stairwell. Exactly. Yeah. I had a patient that used to get anxious every time he heard my heels coming down the hallway. <laughs> it's a little sad, but oh well. <laughs> I guess my question is going to be, what TV show have you watched recently that everyone should be watching? Oh, you know what I really enjoyed was The Undoing, although it doesn't um, put pediatric oncologists in the best light for sure. But uh, hmm. the suspense was pretty cool. So I enjoyed that a lot. What's that about? I, I'm, I don't think it's I know that pediat- Oh, it's, a, um, it's on HBO and it's a small series. Um, but basically, Nicole Kidman um, is a lawyer and her husband, Hugh Grant, is a pediatric oncologist. And there's a woman that um, gets murdered and it explains the story, but it keeps you guessing until the end. It was very well done. Um, again, not the best light for a pediatric oncologist, but <laughs> I'll take it with a grain of salt then. Pediatric oncologist thriller. It is, you know, <laughs> nice. it's a very exciting world we live in. <laughs> it really is. Nice. It's a good show. Yeah. Um, so I like to ask as a learner, kind of like, what's the best advice that you ever received while you're in your training? Um, and for our listeners. So I think my favorite piece of advice ever, I was an intern and one of my attendings said, Tanya, I don't care what the diagnosis is that's coming in or what problem you have that's coming in. You need a differential of five different things for every problem. And it, I try to remember that, right? Because I think we all fall into this pattern where, okay, the wheezing kid has asthma or whatever the case may be. And then when you're not responding to that therapy, you everyone gets stuck and they're kind of like, now what do I do? And so I try to remind myself that the more differentials, the more things you're thinking about, um, you become so much of a better doctor, right? Because when that first therapy doesn't work, um, then you move on to the next step and you're at least thinking of other things. So to me, that was words of wisdom that I try to continue to live by as I practice. That's such great advice from a pediatric oncologist because I feel like cancer can always, it's you always know, in kid there. with a runny nose and cough. It's like it's exactly. probably viral, but exactly. this could be this could be how it, it just should never cancer should never be the top one, right? right. It should always Fair be enough. a little yeah. further down on the list. Yeah, but yes. yeah that, absolutely. That definitely helps us with some a couple different biases, like keeps you from premature closure, keeps you from anchoring if you're getting this diagnosis from someone else. So Correct. I love that. Yes, because I feel, at least for me, right, I feel like the times that you end up messing up the most or kind of um, getting down the wrong path the most is when you're convinced that someone's coming in with this. Um, And so, yeah, it was really good advice. Love it. Absolutely. Should we dive in, guys? Let's do it. You hit it, it, Nick. All right. So we have Luke Osite, who is a previously healthy eight-year-old boy. He presents to Cash Like Children's Emergency Department with his mom due to a two-week history of fatigue, soreness in his legs, and fever. The fever has come and gone and reached a peak of 100.7 taken orally. His parents originally thought that these issues were growing pains and gave him ibuprofen, which moderately relieved his symptoms. Today, in the emergency room, his vitals are a temperature of 100.1, Heart rate at 97, respiratory rate 18, blood pressure 110 over 80, and satting well on room air. On exam, he has a couple 
bruises on his shins and knees in various stages of healing. His cardiac and pulmonary exams are normal. Um, but his abdominal exam reveals some hepatosplenomegaly, you think, um, as a resident, who knows? Um, and no lymphadenopathy <laughs> that you can feel. So I guess our first question, kind of harking to your your thought, is like, what are some initial aspects of the history and exam that would help us actually forming our differential diagnosis of at least five things? And kind of what are you concerned about when you kind of hear about this history? So, you know, the first thing I think is a kid having two weeks of fever on and off makes you worry, right? I think most viral infections that we think about, which should be your first thought as a general pediatrician or a general physician, um, is not going to last for two weeks. And so when you're having fever that keeps going on and on again, that's when you need to really start broadening your differential and thinking about things like leukemia. Growing pains, I would say, is almost always one of the first things that families think, and it's appropriate. But again, you know, those shouldn't keep coming back. Those should respond relatively well to Tylenol or ibuprofen. And so the fact that they're not really having response to the ibuprofen, the fever keeps coming and going, those are all just red flags that make me think, huh, there's probably something else other than just your straightforward viral infection going on. Then you get to the physical exam, and obviously the hepatosplenomegaly should never be there, right? Um, and like you said, you know, it's one of the things that we always try and teach our residents and our medical students, starting deep down in the pelvis and moving up slowly um, so that you can actually really feel that liver edge or that spleen edge as you go along and are doing the exam. But to me, I think, you know, the chronicity of the problem and the fact that it's not getting better, most children are incredibly resilient. And so that's where you really start to think there's got to be something else that's going on. So besides the hepatosplene enlarged, what do you think about the ecchymosis on the shins and the knees? Is this something we need to worry about? Yeah, for sure. And this is always really hard, I think, that, um, you know, easy bruising, how much bruising is too much bruising. In an eight-year-old, a little bit less likely to have those kind of big bruises that you know happen in two, three-year-olds. To me, the tip-offs are usually the bruises where they shouldn't be, right? Where you shouldn't have trauma. So bruises on the abdomen, bruises on the back without a known history of some sort of trauma to explain it. And then obviously, if you happen to see any petechiae, that's usually a good tip-off that you shouldn't be seeing petechiae either. And for children who do ultimately present and have a diagnosis of leukemia, what were their original presentations? You know, how do most of these kids get caught? Is it is it prolonged fever? Is it CBC? Like, what are things that? Uh, yeah, how do these present? An age? Yeah, the vast majority are pretty nonspecific. Um, so you know, fever that keeps coming, um, pallor. The challenge with pallor, right, and anemia is that it tends to be much more of a chronic process. And so it's not like one day they wake up and they're super pale. And so most of the time, the family's kind of not really noticed. The pediatrician doesn't even necessarily really notice. To me, usually the thing that makes everyone go, huh, we really need to do a CBC is just the fact that they're not getting better. And so you really have to expand your differential and say there's got to be something else going on. But for the most part, it's, you know, very similar story to this two to three weeks fever, pain. They're not really wanting to play as much as normal. They're not really wanting to walk as much as normal. But it tends to be such a slow process over two weeks to a month that families don't often kind of appreciate, oh, this is the moment when, you know, my kid got really sick. Um, and same thing with the doctor or the pediatrician. All right. 
Um, I guess for lots of diseases, we think of kind of like predisposing factors. So are there any like important risk factors or kind of health inequity related things that might predispose a kid to childhood leukemia? Yeah. So for the vast majority of children, it's what we consider bad luck. Most people think that it's probably some very hyper response to some sort of viral infection that children got that their body just didn't appropriately respond. Um, things like Down syndrome, trisomy 21, does predispose you to leukemia. And so that's why the teaching is always to do CBCs kind of throughout their childhood. There are a couple other genetic predispositions but that are extraordinarily rare, but for the most part, it's just really bad luck is what we always tell families. And is there an age demographic that we typically see or, or talking about the – well, let's start with that. Is there an age demographic that we typically see? Yeah, so it can occur all throughout um, the you know pediatric range. Um, the most common range for you know our most typical the B acute lymphoblastic leukemia or pre BALL is that two, three, four type range. So that toddler range. We definitely see another peak in early adolescence um, also, but there's no kind of age that this couldn't be leukemia. Children under the age of one have a much worse prognosis and tend to um, do much more poorly with therapy, but um, any age is really possible. So for, for Luke here, what, what type of – so you, we talked about getting a CBC. Are there other things that we, we should be uh, ordering at the yes. same time or other imaging tests? Like what, what, what do we need to do here? Yes. So other labs that we always want um, are tumor lysis labs. So looking at your potassium, looking at your phosphorus, looking at your calcium, looking at your uric acid. Depending on the type of leukemia you have, you can get some amount of even spontaneous tumor lysis. So if you start to see a presentation that your potassium is high, your uric acid is high, your calcium is low, you need to really work hard at getting them on fluids as fast as possible and then doing something to help break down or get rid of the uric acid that's building up. The other thing we always like to get is a chest x-ray at the beginning, um, make sure they don't have a mediastinal mass. That becomes super important as we're working them up because one of the next steps is going to be doing a bone marrow and a spinal tap that we like to do with sedation. And so big mediastinal mass, you want to make sure that you're not sedating the kid. And then if it looks like the lymphoblasts or the blasts under the microscope look more um, granular and look more myeloid, so lots and lots of granules within the cytoplasm, um, then getting a DIC panel also because the granules lead to um, DIC as those um, cells are killed. And this is all clear, uh, when we feel pretty strongly that a child has leukemia, right? Correct. As far as in, exactly. in looking for... Um, how to make that diagnosis. Is it all about the CBC, CBC and smear? Are we getting a procalcitonin, CRP, anything? Pretty much, right? I mean, so I always tell, yeah, I mean, LDH should be really, really high. Um, but, you know, depending on your tumor burden, that can be anywhere from 300 to up to 1,000. So it's not like if you have a normalish LDH or a lower LDH, you're going to say this isn't leukemia. If you see blasts on your peripheral smear, you know, I tell all the residents and medical students that's leukemia and you can walk into the emergency room and feel very, very confident that this is leukemia. I think where it becomes a little more difficult is that just generalized pancytopenia that you don't know. Is this a viral infection? Is this some bone marrow failure process? Is this aplastic anemia or is it truly leukemia? 
And then with families, we're kind of a lot more wishy-washy as far as what we think is going on. And you really need that bone marrow to help you figure out um, why the kid's pancytopenic. And so, Nick, for our patient at Cash Lab Children's, how, uh, what did their CBC look like? Yeah, so I mean, the resident hadn't rotated on HEMOC yet, so you're getting a call, and there's just there's just been a CBC because they look kind of pale, I guess. Um, so the CBC showed a hemoglobin of 11, white cell count of 170,000, and platelets of 80,000. Um, the lab actually called the team in the ED and said that the smear kind of looks funny, some unusual white cells, and that's why you got the call. They were like, "Oh, I guess maybe this is kind of concerning, and I should call the oncologist." Um, so I guess you know we talked about it a little bit, um, and I think you kind of went into it piece by piece in terms of your kind of workup already. But kind of what's significant about the CBC and the smear in particular? What is like when you're an oncologist looking at a smear? I guess what are what are the things you talked about granules before? Yeah, so, you know, the the elevated white count, right, always gives you um, pause. Now, fortunately, at 170,000, you don't worry as much about the um, leukocytosis that you would and the um, uh, leukostasis that really concerns you with elevated white blood cell count. Um, when I get calls, though, with high white counts, the question is when and if I'm going to have to do leukophoresis and what I'm going to have to do to help bring that white blood cell count down. And so then you really want to try and make your best guess as to whether this is a lymphoid disease or a myeloid disease. The myeloid cells tend to be a lot bigger, tend to be a lot stickier, tend to have a lot more granules. And so you tend to, at lower white blood cell counts, have more end organ damage. So difficulty with stroke-like symptoms. Um, Occasionally you'll get um, leukostasis within the lungs where they have a lot of respiratory distress associated with it, sometimes within the heart, although less likely. Um, Typically, our cutoff's about 250, 300 for really feeling like you have to do leukophoresis. Um, But that's always the biggest thing when you get called with a white count over 100,000 is, is there any evidence that this child has leukostasis, in which case I need to work on it really, really quickly. Otherwise, with a white count of 170, if the kid's otherwise looking um, relatively well, then it's just lots of hydration to try and help make sure that um, they don't develop tumor lysis and that their kidneys stay happy as we start to hopefully kill those leukemia cells. And then really trying to figure out, you know, what type of leukemia it is and what do I need to do in order to start making this get better. And as far as that CBC, which is, seems like, you know, such the foundation of it, yes. if you have a stone cold normal CBC, can I officially tell this family, your child does not have leukemia? Can you have... <laughs> so my rule is you never say never. <laughs> But I, you can definitely say, you know, it's very, very, very reassuring and you should not. I don't see anything that makes me worried is probably what I would say. What, what about the opposite? It, what if you have a high Y count that's like really high? Are there any other possible mim- mimickers we need to worry about? So, you know, occasionally real bad infections can do it. Um, If you see abnormal white cells, if you see blasts, then it's a slam dunk and there's nothing else that could be going on. Um, But occasionally, you know, especially in that young infant period, neonatal period, we'll get called with white counts of 25, 30,000 in just a sick kid with a leukemoid reaction going on. Um, But usually older than that, if you get into about the 20s and they're not really, really sick, you need to start being pretty concerned concerned about leukemia. And is there, when you're categorizing leukemias, is there a 
differential between uh, pancytopenia of a of low white blood count cell count and hyperlutrocytosis of a high white cell count, or or can we as see far as both? prognosis is that what you're asking? Prognosis or just the the type of the the leukemia, or, or is there one that is? Yeah, I guess prognosis. Like, if am I looking just for any type of thing that if it turns out red, I'm calling the oncologist, or you know, when am I getting worried and what am I worried about? Yeah. So prognosis, no, we don't really. I mean, if you have a presenting white count um, that's really high and you have ALL, then you're considered higher risk and we just need to give you a little bit more chemotherapy. But otherwise, it doesn't really affect your long-term outcomes that much. I think the most likely reasons to have really high white blood cell count is typically either AML or T-cell ALL. Those tend to be the ones that present with a higher white blood cell count than your standard B-cell ALL. But that being said, right, you know, the other day we had a kid that presented with a white count of 600,000 and has straightforward B-cell ALL. So (laughs) there's never a true, you know, cutoff, but um, it tends to make you think more T-cell or AML if they have a high white count. And then maybe, uh, and let me ask this too, in kids that have pan, um, in kids that have a very low white cell count, that there's concern for a bone marrow um, pathology. Failures. It, yeah. yeah. How, wh- what's the pathology going on there? Because I, I can, you know, picture a B cell just making tons and tons of B cells and having a super white cell count. Why would we be having a low uh, uh, white cell count in some leukemias? We don't entirely understand it, but basically what we think happens is that the leukemia cells essentially just get completely stuck within the bone marrow and don't actually come out into the periphery. Either way, right, you're obscuring the ability of the bone marrow to make normal, healthy white blood cells. But sometimes, and we don't, you can't really differentiate based on type, based on genetics, based on anything, kind of why someone's going to present with a white count of two and someone else is going to present with a white count of 170. So previously, we were talking about some of the labs that we were get. Can we go into this a little more? So you you brought up things like tumor lysis syndrome and some of the labs you got. Can you explain what tumor lysis syndrome is a little bit and what lab? Why are we checking certain labs for that? Yeah. So as the leukemia cells get killed, um, so most of the time this occurs within about 24 to 72 hours of starting chemotherapy. Um, You're basically breaking up this massive amount of white blood cells that are abnormal, that are hanging out in your body. And so all the intracellular components get kind of sent into the bloodstream. Um, And so that's why you have really high potassium. Um, You'll get high phosphorus, high uric acid. You tend to get low calcium. Um, And the biggest trick is in that time period, just making sure that you're hydrating the kids as best you possibly can so that they don't get either calcium phosphorus crystals that develop in the tubules of the kidneys or don't get uric acid crystals that develop because that will then send them into renal failure and we'll have to go to dialysis, which we try our best not to do. So depending on the white blood cell count, depending kind of on those initial tumor lysis labs, we'll monitor that really, really closely um, as you start therapy and try and, you know, make sure that, again, in that 24 to 72 hour window, we're keeping their um, kidneys nice and healthy. I've And I have a question about tumor lysis. And there's a pearl I remember. I might be making a fool out of myself and then we can just cut this out. But that <laughs> there, there's a, a small nuance on a chemotherapy induced tumor lysis syndrome and a just normal progression of 
leukemia tumor lysis syndrome like the phosphate is different is is that a thing or am i nothing that i'm <laughs> there's some right burgitts tends to be the one that really causes the spontaneous tumor lysis and then most of the others don't you don't really get tumor lysis until um you start treating um but yeah i've never heard of any like specific difference about it and is is there a difference for when you do start treating will some have higher incidences of tumor lysis syndrome as well or not yes so Burkitt's leukemias are highest, um, and then T-cell leukemia, then B-cell leukemia, and then AML tends to do more DIC, less tumor lysis. So really, the only times I've ever had to do dialysis for tumor lysis have been Burkitt's or T-cell um, leukemia. Usually, um, the rest were kind of able to help on their own just with fluids and either respiracase or allopurinol. Can you talk a little bit more about the DIC and the pathology be behind that and what, what we're doing there? So the what's thought is that the granules within the um, myeloid blasts, um, as they lyse, they lead to DIC. Um, it's kind of most classic in APML or M3AML, which um, fortunately we don't see a ton in pediatrics. But, you know, again, kind of in that same time period. So that first like three to four days is when you really, really worry about DIC. In a lot of those patients, we won't do a spinal tap up front um, just because of obviously fear of um, leading to more complications than helping them. Um, but typically those myeloid cells with all the granules in them is what leads to the DIC. Awesome. And you talked already a little bit about the leukostasis and the white count, but what other things, I guess, go into your, and you talked a little bit about, I think, ALL versus AML mm -hmm. and how that changes your calculus. So can you just, I guess, flesh that out for us a little bit and kind of what symptoms should we be on the lookout for that would make us, you know, pull the trigger, I guess, on leukophoresis sooner? So really the biggest things are kind of end organ um, damage. So to me, what I see the most, and it tends to be in your monocytic AMLs, that you'll see them just super, super, super sleepy, bad headaches, um, some sort of neurologic compromise. That is immediately a medical emergency, um, and we work hard to start leukophoresis. The challenge with leukophoresis, I think, is it has never been proven to provide a survival benefit. And so some institutions actually feel very, very strongly about leukophoresis. Other institutions feel very strongly against leukophoresis. I think the teaching that has always helped me is if you feel the need to do leukophoresis, you have to go ahead and start chemotherapy also. So you have to make a guess in the middle of the night. Am I thinking this is myeloid, in which case giving some hydrea or giving a little bit of low-dose cytarabine will help me bring the leukemia cells down and the leukemia burden down? Or do I think this is more lymph? in which case giving some steroids will help bring the burden down. So it's not enough to just say, I'm going to quickly bring the white blood cell count down by doing leukophoresis or an exchange transfusion. I got to actually start working on um, treating the underlying disease. And I, for one, always consult the oncologist before doing leukophoresis. Yes, Chris, is that your practice <laughs> yeah. as well? Yeah, totally, me, me too, yes. <laughs> I would appreciate that. <laughs> And I'm sure Blood Bank and PICU and everyone else would appreciate that too. <laughs> <laughs> and so in there's what are some of the other complications that we see in patients that have these leukemias, whether it's from from chemotherapy or uh, or just complications of cancers that we should be aware of that we don't typically see? 
So the biggest thing we worry about is infection, right? I mean, you, I'm essentially at the beginning, they don't have any functional white blood cells. And so we've taken away their ability to fight off any infection. Then I give them chemotherapy and that then continues to make them immunosuppressed for, you know, for ALL, it's up to three years, three and a half years of therapy. And so that's kind of our biggest take home message to families is anything that your kid's doing that looks at all abnormal, fever obviously becomes a medical emergency. You have to drop everything that you're doing and get into the emergency room or into clinic immediately so we can get antibiotics going. We have to start thinking about some of the weirder infections, right? Fungal infections, um, things that we don't normally see in people with healthy immune systems. Other complications from chemotherapy, you know, some of our chemotherapies will cause things like pancreatitis. Some of them will cause um, blood clots occasionally. But, you know, kind of the things that I guess for the most part keep me up at night are um, these bad infections that we just can't seem to get a handle on. So when we're looking at neutropenia, like how low does someone have to be neutropenic that you you get really worried? And then um, what what level is a fever? And if I accidentally gave them Tylenol, does it did I accidentally like suppress their fever or something like that? Fantastic questions. So we consider neutropenia that we worry about ANC less than 500. Um, that's honestly actually based on adult data from the 1970s. So it's not the most up-to-date data that we have. We really think death from sepsis in children with leukemia is probably the highest and really the most concerning if your ANC is less than 100. So you have to be pretty low. Fever, you know, every institution does it slightly differently. Um, we consider basically 101 at any one time or kind of persistently being over 100 to be truly what our definition of fever is. We kind of the classic teaching is you don't give Tylenol, you don't give anything when they have a fever and you just get them to the emergency room. I don't know that it really matters. In my mind, the biggest time I don't want you to give Tylenol um, before coming in is if you're kind of hovering, right? So you're like 99, 99 and a half and you haven't quite spiked a fever, well, then if you give Tylenol, I'm going to have to assume that you had a fever. There's some theory, right, that your um, risk of actually truly identifying the bacteria is highest if you're still in the middle of the febrile episode. And so that's kind of the classic teaching of why you don't give Tylenol at the time. But I think if the kid's miserable and we know you have a fever and we know you're going to give get antibiotics, we can just assume and we can go ahead and give them Tylenol. And so you kind of mentioned some of this first steps of someone that we we feel like does have leukemia, looking for the mediastinal mass, um, likely doing a bone marrow aspirate, um, doing some of these other labs. What about a lumbar puncture? And is, is there other things? I feel like a lumbar puncture we often do. And, and why, yes. why is that indicated or when is that indicated? Yeah, so almost everyone who presents with leukemia, we want to do a lumbar puncture, um, and that's just looking for leukemia cells within the CSF. Um, we know that there's a blood-brain barrier, right? And so the cells that we see um, kind of that are floating around in the periphery may or may not be able to get into the spinal fluid. And then if they're there um, without giving actually chemotherapy into the spinal fluid, we really decrease our ability to treat um, CNS leukemia. So we always do a lumbar puncture, ideally before doing any other chemotherapy. Um, and then the other big spot, kind of big sanctuary spot that we look for is testicular disease in males. So typically presents as unilateral, swollen, hard, firm testicle unusual to present a diagnosis. It's much more common kind of in a relapse setting, um, but definitely something that we should always check for. 
So with some of these procedures like bone marrow aspirates and lumbar punctures, are there any contraindications to, to, to these? And if you can't get them, what do you do then? Yes, great question. So bone marrow, at least in the pediatric population, we feel strongly needs to be done with sedation. Um, so a kid who has a big mediastinal mass that we're not able to do sedation on, we typically choose not to do a bone marrow. Usually those kids tend to have T-cell disease. Usually their white blood cell count's actually high enough that we can get the information that we need just from their peripheral blood. And the big things that we need off the bone marrow or the peripheral blood is looking at the cytogenetics to help us kind of determine further therapy um, because there's some good prognostic indicators and then there's some others that are a little bit worse prognostic indicators. Lumbar puncture, we try really, really, really hard to do up front. And so in a kid that we can't sedate, we'll just go ahead and do it without sedation. Um, the only times we try not to do it is if the kid's in floor DIC and we really worry about causing a spinal hematoma. But otherwise, prognostically and kind of treatment-wise, it's so, so important to figure out whether they have CNS leukemia or not. So I think you talked about a few things and like peripheral f- blood and I assume flow cytometry and then bone marrow aspirate and mm-hmm. lumbar puncture. And you kind of alluded that you get upstage disease if you have leukemia in your CNS. So I guess in terms of talking about all these things, how do you actually make the diagnosis of leukemia? I I feel like I remember back from studying for step one that there's like a difference between leukemia and lymphoma. But then in residency, I feel like peripheral flow has become a bigger (laughs) bigger thing amongst some of the uh, newer newer attendings, I guess is one way to put it. Right. <laughs> right. So the official diagnosis is somewhere between 20 and 25% um, blast within the bone marrow. Um, if you have that much in the periphery, right, you're going to have that much in the source, which is your bone marrow. And so you can often just make the diagnosis um, based on peripheral blood flow. Practically, for most of our cases, if you don't necessarily have that much in the um, bone marrow and so you technically are considered lymphoma instead of leukemia, the therapy is just shortened a little bit, but you still get almost exactly the same therapy. So if you happen to be wrong, you'd probably always err on the side of leukemia, but um, if you happen to be wrong, it doesn't really change your therapy that much. Um, But technical definition is 20 to 25%. Um, So most of our studies that we use require that you actually have at least 25% um, on the bone marrow in order to be eligible for study. And when you make the diagnosis, and you've already kind of alluded to some different types of leukemia, AML, B-cell, T-cell, for for the med students out there, me and Chris obviously are very good at differentiating all of these, but for the for the early medical students, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, do, you, do you have a way that you kind of categorize or break these down in your mind or... or or explain them to, again, the med students? Yeah, so two-thirds of the leukemia that we see in pediatrics is lymphoid leukemia, and the other third is myeloid leukemia. And then within lymphoid leukemia, two-thirds of that is B-cell ALL, and one-third of it is T-cell ALL, making B-cell ALL the most common leukemia that we see in children. We kind of talked a little bit. So T-cell tends to present with more bulky cervical lymphadenopathy, more bulky lymphadenopathy, more hepatosplenomegaly, big mediastinal mass. And then myeloid disease tends to present with higher white count um, and then more likely to have DIC, sometimes mediastinal masses too. But yeah, it's often just kind of a numbers game as far as what you think, right? I typically will quiz the residents and med students, hey, statistically speaking, what do you think this is going to be? You should always vote B-cell ALL. 
but so a lot of it's a numbers game. And then, you know, taking a look at the blasts um, that you can see in the periphery, um, the lymphoid blasts tend to be smaller, more scant cytoplasm, um, whereas the myeloid blasts tend to be bigger, hence why they're stickier and cause more leukostasis, and then tend to have a lot more granules within the cytoplasm. Looking under the microscope is always helpful, although it has always been reassuring to me that half the time the pathologist can't figure out <laughs> whether it's myeloid or lymphoid anyway. And so really that's when, you know, you need the flow cytometry to be able to make that slam dunk diagnosis. Is there a difference in prognosis of B cell versus T cell versus AML? Yes. So B cell does the best. Um, and for, you know, most of our patients, um, that's somewhere on the order of 85 to 90% five-year event-free survival. So stays away, goes away, stays away, never comes back. Now, I always remind people that just based on numbers alone, right, there are more children that die of B cell ALL than any other type of childhood cancer, um, just purely based on numbers. T cell is somewhere on the order of about 70 to 80%, um, although we're getting smarter and smarter. Um, with T-cell. The challenge with T-cell is that when it recurs, it's next to impossible to get them back in remission again, whereas B-cell tends to be pretty salvageable. And then AML has about a 60% five-year event-free survival. So we never like to talk about good types of cancer, but you hear it all the time, right? <laughs> and everyone always picks B-cell um, if you had to pick a type. So thinking about prognosis, and I'm the parent of this kid, Yes. Like, how do you go about talking to them, especially early on? Like, I may, you know, as a parent, I was right. like, I just know that their blood is abnormal and they think it's cancer. How do right. I go about just talking to them about this? So, you know, we try and be honest. We try and be really, really honest. I think um, parents, obviously, the first thing they think is, oh my gosh, you're telling me my child has cancer. They're definitely going to die. And so depending on what we learn, what we know, right, trying to kind of walk that back a little bit and say our hope, our goal is that, you know, he grows up to be whatever he wants to be. This is a bad memory for you all, but nothing more than that. This is part of his story. And then I always say, right, I'm going to tell you. I'm I'm going to tell you if I'm worried. I'm going to be honest with you always. Um, if my expectations, if my goals change, we're going to sit down and talk about that. And the hope being that that gives them enough hope to say, okay, this is worth fighting and I know we're going to get through this. But also acknowledging the fact that you hear the word cancer and you think, my child's going to die. Because I think if you don't acknowledge that, to me, everyone's just living in fear and they're all thinking it, um, but no one's actually willing to verbalize it. And so I think it's our job as oncologists to say, I know this is what you're thinking and that's not my hope. I think the other thing that's super, super important, and I think every fellow when they start out promises, hey, your kid's got the good type. They've got B-cell ALL. This is going to be fine. They're going to be fine. And so kind of my classic teaching is, right, you never promise. You can't promise. And parents want it. Parents Parents will ask and ask and ask and ask, is my kid going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? And you just have to keep, I keep saying, right? I hope, I hope, I hope. That's my goal. That's my expectation. But you never want to be the person that says, I promise, and then have them come back four years later and be like, but you told me this was going to be okay. And then I think, you know, talking to the child also becomes a whole other challenge. And a lot of parents don't want to tell their children when they walk in the door. Now, an eight-year-old, right, we always say they can read. And so when you walk onto the oncology floor and it says pediatric oncology or pediatric cancer, the eight-year-old's going to read that and say, mom, what's cancer? Or, you know, already know. And so, 
you know, trying to, we'll typically give the family a day or two, but then trying to work really hard at talking to them and letting them know that for a child, I think like for all of us, right, having a name for what's going on and what's causing them to be sick is actually way more helpful than not having that name. So usually for the kids, I'll say, you know, this is what it's called. It's called leukemia. Our job is to make you feel better and we're going to have some bad days and we're going to have some good days, but my job is to get this gone. And as an oncologist, I like to think that when you're called in, the parents and patient have at least some semblance of what's going on. But I realize that's probably not always the case. And I'm <laughs> not curious, always the case. <laughs> do you have thoughts for, for generalists, especially when they did, a, for example, a CBC, they see 100 white cell counts. They don't know anything about AML versus right. B cell versus prognosis. They just know bad and oncologists. Right. <laughs> Do you have tips on how to approach that conversation, especially when the only thing, to your point, that parents are going to want to know is, is my kid going to be okay? Correct. What tips do you have? Yeah. So to me, right, as the generalist, you all have the relationship with the family. And so it's really nice if you say, hey, I'm worried. This blood count doesn't look correct. I'm worried about it. I think that we need to have you go see an oncologist. The challenge, though, as you know, right, is that, um, you know, as generalists, you don't know as much and you can't answer all of their questions. And what is more harmful to everyone is if you start going down this rabbit hole of kind of what this, what this, you know, what if, what if, what if. And so I think, you know, giving them the reassurance, I'm going to put this call in or I'm going to send you to the emergency room. I'm going to talk to the oncologist. I'm going to have them meet you. Hopefully that's not what it is, but um, at least giving them a warning shot that you're worried about it, um, especially given that you all have that relationship, I think is super helpful. And as a follow-up to that, if I did a CBC that shows 50,000, in my mind, triaging, is that a phone call saying, go to the emergency room now? <laughs> um, when, when, yeah, when is it an outpatient referral? When is it ED? We got yeah, to do a scene. Leukemia in general, you know, if you're seeing the abnormal cells, especially if you're seeing the blasts in the periphery, that should be an ER to admission. Um, and it's mostly just risk of infection, right? That um, we really need to make sure that we're getting things taken care of as fast as possible. A pancytopenic kid where you don't see any evidence of blasts and the kid otherwise looks well, that can be a, hey, come in in, you know, the next week or so to the oncology clinic. But peripheral blast should be uh, straight to the emergency room um, and with the plan to get admitted. All right. Well, in the meantime, the pathologist got back to us and told us that uh, Luke has B-cell ALL. So I guess for all of us, you know, what kind of does his treatment regimen look like? And his parents are kind of wondering how long is it going to last? What should we expect in terms <laughs> of, you know, commitments? Um, they're trying to... Can he play <laughs> soccer in the spring? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All the things, right? <laughs> so B-cell, ALL, or T-cell, ALL, for the most part, is outpatient chemotherapy, almost all exclusively treated with chemotherapy. Um, if you have high amounts of CNS disease, we'll need to add in cranial radiation, but otherwise just chemotherapy. Typically, two and a half to three years of therapy, the first six to nine months being super intensive where you're coming into our clinic about once a week. Um, to get chemotherapy. And then the remaining time is what we call maintenance, where you're coming in once a month, your hair grows back, you look like a normal kid. You're able to kind of go about a lot more of your normal activities and just taking um, mostly oral chemotherapy at that point. 
As a resident, I spent time on the inpatient oncology wards when they had so many complications, but I didn't get a good sample of outpatient. Are there some outpatient pediatric cancers where they are not hospitalized, that they make it through chemotherapy without ever being in the hospital? Yes, for sure. Um, so some of our, most of them, you know, most of our solid tumors, you'll end up needing some amount of chemotherapy um, in the hospital, but there definitely are some where you don't, a lot of our lymphomas, you don't actually have to come into the hospital um, at all. It can mostly be outpatient chemotherapy and their counts don't tend to drop quite as much or stay down for as long. And so risk of infection is a little bit lower. Wow. This was Nit's question, but I'll, I'll steal it. You know, in talking about the prognosis <laughs> Uh, what are some of the, are there modifiable risk factors? Are there things that we should be doing? Should we put be putting them in a bubble? Are there, you know, family smoking history? Is there anything we should be counseling right. these people on? It's hard, you know, and I always tell families, right? I mean, we have done study after study after study trying to look and understand like why some children get leukemia, why some don't. Um, I mean, they've literally asked like number of apples that parents ate during pregnancy or the mom ate during pregnancy to try and figure out if somehow that could affect whether they got leukemia or not. There really aren't a lot of modifiable um, risk factors. There are definitely, you know, during that first month of therapy, we're learning a lot more about their leukemia. So we mentioned earlier the cytogenetics of their leukemia, whether they have CNS disease, whether they have testicular disease. And then the very most important prognostic indicator is um, how much leukemia they have left at the end of the month. And so the goal being that we don't see any leukemia. And if they're in remission at the end of the month, then their outcomes are significantly better than if you still have disease left. But really, as far as modifiable, not much. You know, I think the hardest part for families is that balance of how much infection, how much cleaning can we do? You know, what happens if sister gets sick? What happens if dad gets sick? And we try and spend a lot of time cautioning that as normal as you can possibly make the child's life, the better, right? You don't want the kid to kind of be put in a bubble and then three years from now, they've been catered to, they've never had to follow any rules and all of a sudden you have this child that's a completely different child than happened at the beginning. So we'll typically try and tell them, right, well, I'm going to tell you the weeks where your counts are really low, where I need you to really stay home and not go see friends and kind of not do a lot of other things. But then there are going to be other times where I'm going to say, hey, this is a really good time to go visit a friend or this is a good time to, you know, go to school this week or um, whatever the case may be. Um, so during treatment, is it is it only is it mostly keeping our antennas up about infection? Are there other side effects or complications we need to be paying attention to? The biggest thing that at least I worry about is infection. There are kind of lots of other side effects that we have to pay attention to. Um, you know, a lot of ALL therapy especially involves steroids and so hypertension and, you know, hyperglycemia, complications like that. Um, the vincristine will cause peripheral neuropathy and so some of our patients end up with real difficulty ambulating or difficulty writing. The other thing that we don't truly understand that well and don't have great even outcome data on is some amount of neurocognitive dysfunction from the repeated lumbar punctures with uh, intrathecal chemotherapy. So just to give perspective, a standard risk ALL kid will get about 27 to 28 lumbar punctures throughout those three years of therapy. A higher risk kid gets about 34. And every single time we do a spinal tap, we put chemotherapy into their spinal fluid. 
And so we don't, you know, some kids seem to be very, very, very affected by it. You hear about like this chemotherapy fog. They tend to have difficulty with attention. Some kids tend to not be affected at all. We don't really understand that well. The other challenge I think with that is that, right, a lot of our, especially early um, leukemia is diagnosed at two or three where you don't know what their long-term cognitive outcomes are going to be anyway. And so when they start school and they're not doing as well as their sibling, it's really hard to know is that who they were going to be anyway way or is it, you know, something that we've done? But it's something that we're trying really hard to understand a little bit better to be able to help families with. So with each of these types of complications, is, are these the things that our, my pediatric oncologist will be able to take care of or handle? Like, will they, it's like, whether there's mental fog, are they going to be able to handle that or neuropathy? Or are they going to be referred to like a neurologist who takes care of a lot of patient, kids with with these types of diseases, uh, what are things that I need to do? Do I need to be worried about diabetes or will endo be involved? Like what, what am I, what am I doing as a pediatrician? Yeah, for the most part, you know, it's kind of one of my favorite parts of pediatric oncology is we get to think through um, all the different steps um, and all the different processes that happen. So a lot of it kind of early on we can handle. There definitely are times, right, if it's more severe that we'll refer out to um, other specialists, but a lot of it we're kind of able to at least troubleshoot at the beginning. So, you know, I, I think talking about kind of what this looks like for the primary care pediatrician and in a couple months, you know, throughout their therapy. As somebody who's med-peds, it kind of makes me think about, you know, what's going to happen more 5, 10, 15 years down the line when we see these patients, oh, they're cured of their cancer, but what else do we need to be thinking about when we're taking that medical history when they're 25, 30, and they're like, oh, yeah, I had B-cell ALL when I was a kid, and it's like, oh, surprise, uh, what, what complications that far down the line do we need to be thinking about? Is there any sort of special screenings that they need to go through? What should we be thinking about? Yeah, so big plug for survivor clinics, right? Because I think that that is the main goal of our survivor clinics is really being able to not only provide data for the pediatrician because we try to get people to walk out of survivor clinic with a letter that goes through, okay, these are the things that they received. These are the things that you as the generalist need to worry about, but also teaching the child, hey, this is something that when you go to the doctor, you need to say, I got Dr. Rubison. And so I I have a lot higher risk of, you know, anthracycline-induced cardiomyopathy. And so if I'm having, you know, symptoms that you might not otherwise worry about, you need to think about that my heart might be failing. Secondary malignancy is always something that we think about. So there's kind of a peak about three to five years and then another peak about five to 10 years. Fortunately, the chemotherapy that we give for most childhood leukemia doesn't really end up with a high risk of secondary malignancy, but something that, you know, doing a screening CBC every year just to make sure is important. Other big things for ALL that we'll think about um, is they get so much steroids or so many steroids throughout their therapy that often their leptin metabolism gets a little bit irritated. And so they tend to be heavier than their sibling counterparts. And so really kind of working hard early on to talk about good exercise and diet is super important. Unfortunately, all of our survivors are less likely to get married or be in, you know, stable relationships, less likely to hold a job. And so it's a little depressing when you kind of think about um, some of the long-term complications later on down the line. But fortunately, ALL tends to have pretty low rates of long-term complications. So one term that you brought up that I, I, I hope you could help me define is survivorship. And I've heard this a lot. 
Um, and I think it means different things. <laughs> well, it means different things to different people. And then you also brought up yes. something about survivorship clinic, which is something that that I've only more recently in the last couple of years become aware of and and have at my institution for a lot of uh, my adult follow up. Um, can you explain? Can you help me with definitions and exactly what survivorship looks like? So for most of our pediatric cancers, we think the risk of relapse occurs within two years from the end of therapy. Now, again, I said, you never say never. So, you know, I've seen B-cell ALL recur 10 years off therapy. Um, but for the most part, within two years of completing therapy. And so typically, most of our um, patients will then refer to our survivor clinic at that two-year time mark. And basically, at that point, I explained to the family, look, you know, my worry about relapse is a lot lower than it has been. And so now I really want to focus on any long-term complications that might happen because of um, the therapy that we've given you. Survivor clinics becoming something that we are super invested in as we're getting better and better and better at treating um, childhood cancer in general. We're learning kind of what happens when they become 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Um, and so really providing both their physicians and the patient themselves with the education of, you know, this is what happened and these are my higher risk factors. There's all this data again from like the 1970s, 80s, where children would go to the doctor and they'd pull up their shirt and have some giant scar across their belly and have absolutely no idea that they had Wilms tumor or something like that. And that's obviously not ideal. Um, so bigger institutions are really working hard to have a survivor clinic. And then you know, focus starting in the pediatric age point, but then transitioning over to that adult time point um, so that they can continue to be followed um, by an oncologist lifelong. Gotcha. And to clarify, like survivor clinic will be sort of prescriptive and like this is sort of the plan and helps helps the patient understand what are the things that they need to follow up with oncology, what are the things right. to follow up with a pediatrician, and then also helps us as the primary care to know what are our roles in the patient's Right, right. And so often there's a whole um, kind of focus on making what we call a survivor passport so that the child or the young adult can have kind of a, you know, document that goes through exactly what um, they went through and what those risks are. Um, but yes, it's something that we as oncologists will say, you should go to the survivor clinic. And it's typically built within our oncology clinic. Um, and it's, um, you know, manned by pediatric oncologists. And then adult oncologists. Um, I would say the vast majority in the country of adult survivor clinics are run by um, MedPeds physicians just because you have a special spot for pediatrics, exactly, um, and kind of have that um, unique perspective. We have a quick brown plug. We have a cancer survivorship clinic built into our primary care clinic, and there's a lot of great uh, collaboration that is uh, a great learning process for our residents, for our attendings, but also offers really great continuity of care. It's a great model. I did want to ask, as uh, as an organization, we we have a, a big commitment to to health equity and you know addressing racial disparities that are pretty prevalent throughout all major pediatric issues. in In the realm of pediatric cancer, is this something that comes up? Is this something that either in access or treatment or diagnosis that that is is, is prevalent? 
Yeah, you know, a couple of our um, diseases are more racially um, inclined, but the vast majority, it's really an access to care issue. Um, and so, you know, kind of finding um, physicians and getting there quickly, um, trusting in the medical system, I think that's a, a major challenge that we sometimes see, especially because so many of our patients early on will offer research studies, right, as we're trying to advance the field. And, you know, understandably in our country, there's a lot of reticence for some research studies, especially in different patient populations. And so trying to overcome that is a challenge for us, for sure, especially when you've just heard my child has cancer and you can't even imagine that. And then you're being hit with a stack of like 50,000 sheets of paper and saying, here, sign this, sign this. But fortunately, we're pretty lucky in that there's not a lot of racial or ethnic inequity within childhood cancer. Great. Thank you for that. This is really one of my favorite questions because it sort of helps. Well, I mean, honestly, we've been we've been ending on pretty good notes right now. But sort of on a, on a good note, what what does the future look like with childhood leukemia? What are some some what are exciting treatments or diagnostic things that you see coming down the line that we need to be looking forward to? And what excites you about them? It's a great question. It's one of my favorite parts of um, what I do, right? Even since finishing fellowship in 2009, the advances in our field are unbelievable and it's pretty cool. So I think the main focus that we have is more targeted therapies all around, um, kind of stopping relying on chemotherapy as much, which we were talking about earlier, have so many long-term complications, but really being able to target, okay, this is the pathway that affected this whole or started this whole problem. Can we get to that pathway and can we um, stop it with just a small molecule inhibitor or something like that. In some cases in pediatrics, it's a home run. And then in others, we're really having to kind of add it into um, chemotherapy or other treatments. I think CAR-T has been kind of one of the most exciting things that has happened in the world of leukemia recently. It's only for B-cell right now, so it doesn't work for T-cell or myeloid leukemia. But basically, you know, kind of our way of tricking your immune system into going in and killing those um, affected B-cells. But still, right, as we're doing that more and more and more and kind of hoping to move that into upfront therapy, then we're seeing lots of kids who have recovery of their B cells early after CAR-T therapy or relapse with, you know, a leukemia that doesn't have the markers that we tried to eradicate. And so there are continued challenges. But the goal really is, can we find out a way that we can understand a little bit better what caused this leukemia? We can go in and target that so we don't have to give kind of all of these aggressive therapies. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so we talked about a lot of great topics of diagnosis, treatment, the the future of leukemia treatment. Are what are the big take-home points for for our listeners, whether again, med students, residents, people who are post-training? Um, what are the big takeaway points for people who might see uh, patients with with leukemia? The big take-home points, I think, are, you know, like we talked about at the very beginning, right? Keep this on your differential. And so if a kid is not responding to your um, initial therapies, start thinking about it and start wondering, could this be some sort of cancer? Two, I think definitely talking early to your oncologist and getting our help and our assistance. Don't be shy. We'd always rather, you know, hear from you than not hear from you for sure. And three, I think that you know, this isn't a death sentence, fortunately, right? And most of our children, most pediatric cancer, we are able to cure. And these kids get to go on and live a normal, healthy life, um, which is obviously why we keep doing it, why we love doing it. 
but, you know, so obviously it's sad. No one ever wants their child to get cancer. No one ever wants their patient to get cancer. But knowing that, you know, the science that we've been fortunate to be able to be part of um, has made our cure rates so much higher than it ever used to be. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. your expertise. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Any any resources that you'd like to to send our listeners to to, to check out? I don't think so. Um, you know, we always use Children's Oncology Group, but that's kind of our big um, research area. Um, but yeah, I don't think really anything. Easy enough. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for, yeah, for your time. Thanks. Thank you so much for, for sharing this. I think this is going to be great. And I think uh, I learned a lot. Um, Chris definitely learned a lot. <laughs> Everything. And, uh, Everything. Yeah. <laughs> And Nick knew um, it all because I taught him. So. And Nick knew it all, yeah. So he, 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 he got to share a lot of pearls with us too. Um, thank you so much. This of was course. this was excellent. Really a pleasure. Really, really awesome. thankful for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that. We need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast players. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to all of our producers on social media team, particularly to our producer tonight, Dr. Nicholas Lee. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Nick Lee. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.